0: Welcome to a new edition of the famous interviews with Joe D'Amino. On this episode, we talk with neurodiversity life coach and autism disability advocate Danielle Sullivan. Essentially, she is an autistic neurodiversity life coach, parent coach, and parent of two neurodivergent kids living in Colorado. She works with these families worldwide on their personalized self-development goals. She also hosts a neurodiverging podcast. Her mission is to help the neurodiverse folks and families find the resources they need to live a better life. Is Individuals and to further disability awareness and social justice efforts to improve all of our lives as a part of the larger world community. enjoy this interview.
1: thank you for taking a minute out today. I appreciate it oh of course I'm happy to
2: so just for context, so you have an idea of you know what I do you know i my primary vocation with podcasting is is jazz radio, but I've really yeah. branched out, but I'm also branching out more to kind of the special needs autism community because my son is 17 and he is on the autism spectrum and yeah so I think there would be a lot of two-way um information confessional that would be really good for people to hear and Mm -hmm. I just think it would be beneficial so that just kind of gives you a um just to be transparent up front so
1: that's really helpful thank you because yeah I saw you usually do the jazz and I was like I'm happy to talk about autism but i wasn't sure how it would tie in so that's really helpful yeah, yeah. yeah cool.
2: <laughs> so so let's let's get into you know i will i will kind of start this off a little bit here with mm-hmm. you know miles is on the spectrum he has an extra long arm on his 15 chromosome that's mm-hmm. related to uh, developmental delays throughout his life speech motor you know occupational all of those things yeah. so when when covid started And I heard rumors. I had a friend that told me about two months before that there was going to be a shutdown. And I just dismissed that I was in total denial because Miles, his two favorite things on the planet are Major League Baseball, which was getting ready to begin in March, Mm -hmm. and school. And I just couldn't fathom what it would be like. So I'm curious, from your end of things, Mm -hmm. how did you deal with COVID and how did that process change you now that we're emerging out of
1: it? Yeah. So I have two much younger children. They're seven and nine, um, ADHD and autistic. And they were both enrolled in conventional school out here when COVID uh, started and the shutdown happened. Um, and I switched to homeschool initially, which went okay. Um, and then when school kind of restarted virtually in September, um, we ended up pulling them out and starting homeschooling because they were not getting their needs met through a virtual option at all um and we're just we're trying very hard but we're refusing basically (laughs) to um to participate they were having a lot of trouble you know understanding um what they were meant to do on screens and how to communicate with other kids on screens and just feeling i think very stressed out by the entire thing Um, and my son who was being pulled out for special ed small group work um, you know, they didn't offer that virtually initially. So a lot of autistic and ADHD kids and other neurodivergent kids, um, lost their accommodations right when the pandemic started. And really, some of us never got them back.
2: So. Uh, I've never heard it that way, but I can imagine so. I know with Miles, he would have regular sessions, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, it yeah, it, it, it was what it was. It's really hard with that community to do that because they're so tactile. There's a level of them. I think that, I mean, I think everybody benefits from that in-person scenario, but I think with the special needs world, I think it's extra necessary for there to be human interaction.
1: Yeah. I think there's a big environmental piece that a lot of Um, especially autistics, I I speak as an autistic person, a lot of us are very sensitive to our environments, to sounds, to the way the light is, to textures. And it can be hard in the home environment to, you know, reduce that noise and make the lights right and and sort of get them situated in a place that's going to be good for them to learn and uh, for them to feel safe to learn in. Um, Whereas at school there are, you know, professionals, paras, um, OTs, speech therapists, other adults who can kind of come in and make sure that they're able to attend and focus on their work um, in the in the school environment. So that was a big piece for us as well.
2: So to get a handle, a better handle on what you do, I, I'm going to take you in front of a group of third graders at a career mm-hmm. day. And one of the kids is going to look up at you and say, what do you do for a living and how are you qualified to do it? How would you answer them?
1: Sure, so I help people with all kinds of brains make their lives better. Um, I often describe it to my children who are around the third grade level as helping people solve problems, which is really what I do um I help people with different brains solve problems um I help them achieve their goals I help them um decide what they want their lives to look like and make a plan to get there. Um I'm qualified to do it as a certified life coach and a certified solutions focused coach and a couple of other <laughs> certified uh like coaching uh degrees I guess or 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 uh, certifications. And I'm also an autistic ADHDer with autistic ADHD kids and extended neurodivergent family. So I have a lot of lived experience with that as well. So
2: when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Oh my, I think I wanted to be, I remember wanting to be a baker, but then also wanting to do something like outer spacey, like maybe a baker on the moon (laughs) would be my my childhood hope. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That might be where (laughs) moon pies came from, you
1: know? Oh, aren't they delicious? My goodness. Yes. yes.
2: (laughs) Yes. So. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, you obviously are highly motivated in what you do. I mean, you you know, being a life coach is not something that anybody, a profession that anybody would take lightly. And I'm curious, how did those seeds get sprinkled in you when you were younger to become who you are now?
1: I think that my family was very focused on authenticity and the idea that In some ways, it's always going to be you against the world that there are all these systems in place in the world that are not great, that are harmful, that hurt people, and that it's part of our job as as humans living here to make the world a better place. And there's lots of ways you can do that big and small, but that was very much important in my family. Um, And then being yourself and bringing whatever gifts you have into the world to support other people like that. We're a community and we need to be community oriented. So I think that was in place from when I was very small and I struggled throughout my 20s and early 30s with, well, what am I good at and how do I bring that to the world? Because as a neurodivergent person, I was uh, undiagnosed until I was 34 ish. Um, so I didn't know I was autistic. I was autistic the whole time, obviously, but didn't know I was autistic until then. Um, and so I really struggled with a lot, just trying to figure out how I fit in. Um, and so I also think that I bring a lot of that into sessions with me where I'm dealing or or working with a lot of folks who, um, sometimes have been diagnosed since children and sometimes are also late identified folks, um, but who have also experienced the same kind of, I want to contribute. I want to contribute. No one will let me kind of feeling. Um, yeah. So I think that so, plays a lot into what I do.
2: Sure. So is it is it is it the classic autism? Is it Asperger's? What exactly is it?
1: Yeah. So autism is often referred to as a spectrum, um, which means that there's a lot of different traits and they um, show up differently in different people. Um, there's different presentations of autism that are are somewhat related to gender and race, um, and somewhat related to where it comes from. I think um, the best way to think about it, the research is still really in its infancy in early stages. But we do think, um, as far as I understand the research, that there's more than one autism. So there are autisms. And so some of them are um, they're all functional brain differences, but they might look different on um, you know a medical scanning device. Some of them are from um genetic differences, like you mentioned with Miles. Um there's a couple of different genetic differences that can be related to autism and so different presentations of autism from all those different um sort of medical reasons. Um and then there's also folks who um range in intellect with autism, and so there's folks with autism who are um very um Sorry, I lost, my, I lost my train of thought midway. There are folks with autism who are, uh, average intellect and then lower on the spectrum and higher on the spectrum. So there's a big range in how it, how it comes across. There's people with, de- and there's also people who have other chronic conditions, uh, uh, along with their autism, which can change presentation. So some folks have downs and are autistic. Some people are, um, uh Angelman is a kind of autism. Um some people are savant level intelligence and also autistic. So all of these presentations, they're all autism, but there's a huge range. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, I got yeah, absolutely. And and when I began this journey with Miles, it was very early on, probably a year mm-hmm. and a half where there was, you know, actual testing and things were getting figured out. So, you know, from the word go with miles, we knew about it and got him therapies, and that was the Mm -hmm. big thing, early intervention. So I'm curious. I'm discovering now that I'm doing more interviews that there's this population of people that find out, like you, late in life. And I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Was this something that your parents knew about and it didn't get told you until later? How did that discovery happen so late in life?
1: I think a lot of us are missed. Um, The more that I do work with this, Um, so there are people of all kinds who are misdiagnosed or not identified at all. But a lot of folks are um, missed because we don't present traditionally. So there's a certain type of autistic person that the research has focused on most. Um, And that's usually a young white American boy (laughs) um, to be very specific. And so we have a good amount of research on what autism looks like for those kids. Um, We don't have great um, scanning tools for people who are not that model. And so if you're of color, if you're a woman or girl, if you're not in America, if you're older, um, we don't have evaluatory tools that really work. And so, um, that, that one profile gets all the attention and there's lots of other profiles that are just starting to be understood as, as also autistic people. And so I definitely fall into one of those pieces where I'm, um, you know, identified late because my young white autistic boy son was identified, and then it was like, oh, it's also me. It's also these other members of our family. Um, But if I had not become a parent, I might not have ever been offered that diagnosis because I'm a woman. Um, I'm relatively what we, it's, there's a, a lot of discussion in the autism community around the word around this idea of functioning labels, whether you're high functioning or low functioning. Um And it, it's not really a good way to assess people, but it's a way to think about how do you look from the outside, right? So from the outside, I look like I've got it together. I can, you know, keep my family running. I can pay for my bills. I can work. I can, you know, feed myself, those kinds of things, daily living skills. Um, But I also struggle a lot and it's just not really seen from people looking at me from from outside. Um, within my family, it's well known that I struggle a lot because they can see it. So um, a lot of us were misdiagnosed with depression, anxiety, you know, uh, postpartum depression happens a lot with autistic women. Um, and uh until somebody who's familiar with what our profile looks like says, Hey, wait, have you ever been evaluated for autism? We just might not ever be caught.
2: You know, and I remember in the early goes with Miles, it was predominantly most of the diagnoses were with uh, males, overwhelmingly Absolutely. females. You know, mm-hmm. so that was another part of this, too. You know, and I also have thought about the life and timeline of Miles. You know, once we got the diagnosis, there was a lot of care. There was there was mm-hmm. a total different way that we interacted with him than, say, a neurotypical child. And with someone that I talked about the guy diagnosed later, I'm wondering if maybe that was a benefit. I know that you have to have needs that are taken care of, but if you're just treated to a certain degree, like you're just a regular person and and they're going to expect things that are going to you know be regular, like riding bikes and doing different things, maybe that would be of a benefit. Have you ever thought about that kind of placebo effect that goes in to the rearing and and assistance that we give, you know children that have special needs?
1: Yeah, I think I have a lot of opinions on this. I don't know if I can fit them into a short sentence, but I'll do my best. I have talked to a lot of other um, folks in the special needs world, special education world, and also just neurodiversity worlds, and I think there are benefits to having um, folks of all abilities in the general population in schools and work and those kinds of things and also to allowing us to have our own groups where we know each other and get to know each other um, i can say as somebody who has late identified that um in many ways i did benefit from you know being expected to do, being expected to say, learn daily living skills the same way somebody else would, or being expected to uh, babysit my younger siblings, like things like that, given that responsibility and that respect and that authority was really important for me. Uh, In the same way, though, um, I was very harmed by being misdiagnosed. I um, was asked to do things that were beyond my abilities without receiving kind of any training about how to do those things. I didn't understand social communication type stuff, I still often um, need to ask clarifying questions to neurotypical people or uh, people of other neurotypes um, that neurotypical people wouldn't need to ask. So I still need to like check in a lot. And a lot of anxiety developed around my misdiagnosis because I thought I was, I was working so hard and was still not achieving what people expected me to achieve and now looking back I can say oh you know there were skills gaps I could have used more training in these particular things I could have used more support in these specific things I probably needed a slower pace of life than I was getting um, just because I was doing so much extra sensory processing and cognitive processing that other neurotypical people don't need to do um, so it was actively harmful to not get that support in some ways but there were also ways that it was um very helpful. And so I think we have to be really careful with our kiddos, especially to, as you say, not over-support and still sort of assume that they're going to be okay unless we see otherwise. Um, but also that we do need to be really careful to like try to reduce that imposter syndrome, anxiety stuff that comes up when you're living in a world that's really not built to support you.
2: Yeah. I, yeah, that's well said. <laughs> so, Yeah, you know, the one thing that's always very good about anybody out there is the role models and people that we admire. Who's been a hero for you that's consistently made you stronger?
1: Am I allowed to say my mother? (laughs) My mother is the first person that comes to mind. Yeah, you can say anybody, yeah. She was like a proto, um, what I work on a lot now, so I do parent coaching as well, and and I work from a model um, of, of democratic parenting which is a piece of gentle parenting. It's collaborative. It's this idea that you're all on the same team, that you're working with your kiddo and um, you're establishing trust and you're really collaborating together to solve problems. And my mother was the proto collaborative parent in a time when a lot of parents were very authoritarian. Um, she really enabled me to make it much farther in life than I would have in another family Um, because she taught me skills. She like, you know, would sit down and have conversations with me um, and respect my knowledge and my abilities, but also point out where I might be wrong or where I might want to think about something a little bit more creatively than I was Um, in a a very gentle, careful way, but in a very supportive way that really pushed me, um, but wasn't frightening for me. And I think, that's a model that I really call on to use with my own kiddos and when I work with other parents. Um, I really do think of my mother and, and all the ways that she succeeded in, frankly, what must have been a really difficult time because I was not an easy child, you know. Um, I, I, uh, have high intelligence, but I, I really, I cannot, um, <laughs> I cannot tell you how much I did not understand social skills. I didn't know how to make friends. I didn't really, I still don't really understand fashion and how to get dressed and how to like look like other people look. Um, I don't always move like other people move. And you can tell from my speech, I know I communicate well, but my speech is, is a little a little too academic and I've never been able to solve that. And so I don't always uh, show up in, in a, a way that fits in with the crowd. Um, and my mother really supported me Kind of, despite all these differences, and enables me to get to get to where I am and do the things I can do. So, I'm you know, I think,
2: for yeah, for sure. You know, and I think there's a lot of people out there that look at, at kind of the autistic community as you know very special, almost like chosen individuals. And I think about someone like Temple Graden that has done all mm-hmm. this great work and used because there is a part of like, for instance, with Miles for all of the things that you've been describing that go into it, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of things that he can't, simply can't figure out, but there's a lot of things that is the way his brain works that is, is very spectacular. And I think that's yeah. the thing I've often wondered, you know, we, our society is all about everybody being homogenized into this classification and we have to be normal and regular and whatnot. But I think there's a lot to celebrate with the way that a lot of the autistic community thinks and the way they interact. And I think that, that a lot of people that run businesses and that are running the world are noticing that and harnessing that power. Are you noticing that?
1: I definitely think it's gotten a lot more uh, push in the news lately uh, that, that, you know, diversity in, at workplaces should include neurodiversity as well. Um, what I hear from clients on, on our side is that there's a lot of, you know, white papers being published and a lot of advertising being done around neurodiversity efforts, but workplaces still have a lot a lot of work to do to make it really neurodiversity friendly for a lot of us. Um, so I do think it's it's starting to be recognized, but I, I also think there's still this push for most workplaces to really fit us into the mold of what their workplace already looks like as opposed to really making, you know, uh, safe places for us. Essence. But we do have a lot to offer. I mean, I don't think I know so many uh, really quick, smart, good thinkers who are autistic and ADHD who cannot find jobs or who cannot keep jobs because they can't keep the nine to five schedule or they can't um, handle the, the sensory uh, environment at the office um or you know any or or their communication is just a little different and other people aren't willing to work with them on that um and so i really hope that we can become more inclusive as a society because these are folks who have a lot to offer and are just not getting their foot in the door you know and that's that's really frustrating and and sad
2: you know, my son's 17, and there's an amusement, mm-hmm. amusement park here in Kansas City called World of Fun. And it's always been a place where he finds comfort, a the therapeutic kind of place. Yeah. So I reached out this summer and found a supervisor walking by. And it was a long process, but we finally got him there, and he got his job. And he's been really good at it. And, you know, he primarily works on the weekends, and it's about three-hour shifts but they've really embraced them. He has this enthusiasm for the park and they do have a lot of special needs kids. And because mm-hmm. of miles enthusiasm, they're thinking about having more of a mentoring program for special needs kids. So that would be you just
1: fantastic. Don't, yeah. yeah,
2: you just don't know what can transpire in the matter of, you know, just doing what, you know, just trying to get the, the, the that community out to work with everybody else and, mm-hmm. um, I think it's really beneficial for everybody there. I think it works. I think it's healthy for a lot of people to see that happen um, because we all need help, whether you're young or you're special needs or you're the elderly. If we have a society that inherently helps each other out, how could that be a bad thing?
1: That's exactly where I come from too. Community first. And that means that we have to be inclusive of all kinds of differences, regardless of whether they're ability or or anything else. And um I think at least with you know, there's lots of different forms of neurodiversity. With autism especially, a lot of us in the autism communities really think of ourselves as just being sort of culturally different. Like we speak a slightly different language, our gestures are different, but we're you know, just as able as anybody else in in the long term. And when we do need accommodations, you know, if you work with us on those, we can still perform very well. Um, so in the sense of the workplace, it's really just like, you know, working with somebody who just immigrated from somewhere else. You know, you, you're you a little bit more patient, you understand language differences, you understand cultural differences. And I think if if folks could just approach um, neurodiverge pe- neurodivergent people with that kind of feeling of just being a little bit more patient, being curious, and just working together as a community, we could get so much more done.
2: So I'm curious, you know, life is all about perceptions and your family and your friends and clients all have a perception of you, but ultimately you live your life. You have a perception of you. What's your perception of who you think you are?
1: I think I mostly think of myself as somebody who's really driven to learn and driven by community and making friends and making connections and helping other people do the same i also think like i'm kind of a goofy person i really like my terrible dad jokes and my puns um i i like you know being cozy warm with my cats I my perception of myself is I guess just a very human one that I have things that I'm really good at and things that I uh, really am am not good at and should put more work in but probably never will Um, and I I think that's I I would have to say pretty normal among people right we have we have things we really like about ourselves and things that are sort of like well yeah that's just a human thing you know that's fine but I think I'm a pretty normal person
2: (laughs) yeah Absolutely. You know, and I remember there was some points with Miles, especially when he was in middle school, where there would be some of his friends, I'd go meet him up at lunch, and they're like, I don't understand why he's in special ed.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: it's it's amazing how, you know, people can kind of blend in, and, uh, you know, you just don't really know. Um, yeah. You know, and does it really matter? I mean, at the end of the day, I think we're all so preconditioned to treat each other in certain ways. I think I've always, as a parent with Miles, I've never done that thing at the amusement park where he gets to come up in line and he gets to do things. Like I'll hear people mention that, and it just doesn't factor in because I just want him to operate on a level that, you know, he's just going to be accepted for who he is and he's not going to get any level of preferential treatment. And I'm not doing that, obviously, to, 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 you know, hold him back, but I just want, I don't know, I, I guess I just want the world to just see him for who he is instead yeah. of for the labels that, you know, we've been given because we have to cope with what we have.
1: Yeah, this is the difference I really see a lot in, in neurodivergent people verse, versus neurotypical people. Or, yeah, I said that right. Neurodivergent people versus neurotypical people. Um, although it's not everybody everywhere, but there is a difference between requesting preferential treatment and requesting needed accommodations, right? And yeah. everybody has to make their own individual decision as a disabled person in the world, what those are, right? Whether for some folks, the accommodation is getting a front in line. And for some folks, that's preferential treatment, right? So I, I really hear not wanting to give more than is needed, but just, you know, that each family needs to make those decisions for themselves and each uh, person has to make them. Um, and I also think that I, I've talked about this, I think, in a couple of places. A lot of folks are really against the idea of a label as being reductive or being, you know, that's all that person's going to be. They're just going to be autistic. For folks like me and other late identified people, that label was our way to finally understand ourselves and our place in the world and and what we could do. Because before I was autistic, I was just a failing person. I was just somebody who couldn't do basic things, who couldn't do basic self-care, who couldn't keep a job. And I didn't understand why. And once I got the label, I was able to access tools and accommodations and support so that I could be more successful. And so like me without the label isn't me. It, it would just It's just that failing person I used to be. Um, whereas I think a lot of neurotypical folks and able-bodied folks think of labels as being diminishing or reductive or or um, sort of imprisoning. Um, and they can be, you know, again, it's it's a little complex, but there's, there's a benefit I think as well that um, I encourage people to keep in mind that knowing more about somebody, whether that's the label of right-handed or the label of autistic um, gives you more information about how to help them best.
2: So if anyone wants to, to learn more about you and your role as a life coach, hire you, anything related to your world, where can they go out there on the web?
1: Oh, thank you. So I'm at neurodiverging.com. I'm also on socials at the same one. It's dot G.com. Neurodiverging. Um, and I'd be happy to give you resources, hook you up with a life coach or, Um, just talk with you about any questions you have or support you where your family is. Yeah.
2: Wonderful. Danielle, thank you for taking a minute out today. Good luck with everything. I appreciate
0: it.
1: Thank you so much, Joe. I appreciate you having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, and music from around the globe. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.